just to recap where we were uh, last week, we're really in sort of an introductory phase here where we're talking about why it is important for us to understand who God is and to know God. And we were looking uh, last time at Jesus' high priestly prayer, as it's called in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then that last verse is the key verse, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We were saying last time, just uh, reminding ourselves, as uh, Jesus says here in this prayer, that eternal life is the knowledge of God. And as I was uh, saying last time, there's every indication in Scripture that uh, our eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. That is, that we will for eternity know God better and better. And even as we do that, we will never be able to exhaust His character. Now think about that for a minute. As difficult as it is, even impossible for us, think about what eternity is like. No end to it. It just is. It's It's something that is happening, that is, it's not static, we're not just in one place, it's not present like that, but it's present in the sense that there really is nothing but that, even though there is duration. Now, think about that eternity and what we're doing together as the Lord's people in the new heavens and the new earth, which is our final destination. So I was saying last week, parenthetically, heaven is not our final destination. Heaven is a transition point to the new heavens and the new earth in which we will reside together as the Lord's people, and the Lord Himself will be there, and we will worship Him for eternity, never-ending worship. Now, if you're a Christian, that has to excite you. I know it raises questions. Really? So it's just going to be worship? Yes, it is, and that's all that we'll want to do in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the context of that worship, you see, we will see... Christ face to face, we will know Him better, and there is every indication in Scripture that we'll know Him better and better and better as the duration of eternity goes on and on and on. Now, it's impossible for us to know what eternity is like. I remember asking uh, one of the uh, professors at Westminster Seminary, at that point in time retired, Dr. Van Til, who taught apologetics at the seminary, I asked him one time, I said, Dr. Van Til, what is eternity? And he said, well, here it is. He said, you have, you have a mountain a million miles high made of brass. And every one million years, a little bird comes along and pecks once on the mountain and then flies away. Comes back in a million years, pecks again. He says, eternity is when the mountain is worn down. He said, now do you know any more than you did? I said, no. He said, I don't either. <laughs> <clears throat> so he was saying that's sort of an illustration people use just to try to illustrate the endlessness of it all, the glorious endlessness of it all, because we will be at that point where we were created to be, in the presence of God for eternity. And this is what Jesus is saying here. Again, the language is stark in verse 3. This is eternal life. He's not saying this is how you get eternal life. He's saying this is what eternal life is. That life that lasts for eternity is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ. And so we uh, see that uh, again in Revelation chapter 22, 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. We will see Him as He is, that is, we will see Christ, and in seeing Christ we will see God. And His name will be on our foreheads. He will say, these are my people, my people, for eternity. So we were looking at that, and then we had a quotation from Calvin's Institutes, and there's a picture of Calvin. I think that's the historic, I think that's the actual portrait um, of... Yeah, I know. It's... That's, that's why it's there. By the way, I should mention my son who's here, Jared. He, he did all these. <laughs> Since I don't know how to do technology, he put these together for me. Oh, I should also introduce, I'm sorry I didn't do this. Um, our, my other son, uh, Joel, and his wife, Kate, are here. They came from Columbus, Ohio uh, today. To uh, They actually came for another reason, not just to see us, but we get the benefit of when they come. And uh, the reason my wife is not here is that she has the privilege of staying with our grandson. Uh, this morning. So I tried to talk her into switching places where she would do this and um, I would stay with the grandson, but that didn't work. All right, now I want to move uh, from uh, our discussion of uh, John 17 uh, to uh, the second point uh, of why it is important uh, to study uh, our understanding of God, and that is that it is our salvation. The first point, it is eternal life. The second point, it is our salvation. And here I think uh, it's important for us to see what Paul is intimating in Romans uh, chapter 11 in uh, this great doxology. First we'll read it and then we'll uh, say a few things about it. Romans 11, uh, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now you know enough about the book of Romans to know that this comes at the end of a section, a very difficult section in the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 9, really introduced in chapter 8 at the end, and then beginning in chapter 9, where Paul is discussing the difficult doctrine of election. And uh, particularly, as he moves into chapter 11, uh, the election of Israel and what that means. And uh, as he's uh, discussing uh, those doctrines, and really as he's uh, looking at... Sorry. As he's uh, looking at uh, the entirety of God's salvation and the way in which the Lord uh, Himself has orchestrated things in the world for His own purposes, uh, we get this doxology from the Apostle Paul. Now, um, what is uh, immediately preceding uh, verse 33? That's the uh, question everybody wants uh, to answer. Verse 32. Easy enough. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, just think about that for a minute. And I don't want to go into a long um, discussion here of exactly what uh, Paul is after, but you know what he's been saying. I'm sorry, this thing is... Yeah, there'll be some slides up here. We'll skip pretty quickly. Um, 
Paul has been discussing just how it is that God's salvation takes place in history. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul writes, he has insight because of the Spirit himself into what takes place in eternity. But in this context, uh, part of what he's uh, affirming here is that God himself has sovereignly orchestrated everything that goes on in history. And specifically here in verse 32, God has orchestrated everything relative to disobedience and obedience. Disobedience in this context and mercy. And it's, it's, this, uh, it's this discussion, this subject matter, which again is uh, difficult, uh, that causes the Apostle Paul now to move to doxology and worship because of what God has done. Now I think uh, we need to think about that just generally for a minute. Paul is aware of the fact, even though he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes what God himself has breathed, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed, and that's what Paul is writing. Uh, And even in that context, you see, as Paul lays out what God is up to in the world, he recognizes that he reaches quickly his own intellectual limits. That is, even the Apostle Paul, and certainly it's the case for us, as he thinks about God's plan in history and the way that that relates to what God does in eternity, Paul begins to recognize we can go only so far and no farther. Now that's something that we're going to have to grapple with in this class because any time we discuss the character of God and His relationship to the world, we are always, always, always going to come up against unfathomable mysteries. We just are. Because we're talking about an infinite, personal God who is fundamentally independent and immutable, that is, unchangeable, and yet even as He is, He condescends to relate himself to his creation and to carry out a plan that he himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, put together in eternity past. Whenever you get into discussions of that nature, you always come up against mystery. Mystery. And that means that there'll be questions that we may ask and might be legitimate questions. And we'll have to say, We don't know, because this is God working. We don't know exactly how he's able to do this. One of my favorite uh, quotes from John Calvin, he says this, he says, When Scripture shuts its sacred mouth, let the Christian desist from inquiry. You see what he's saying? God has given us all that we need in biblical revelation to understand who he is and what he's doing. But he may not have given us all that we might want at some point. We might want to know how certain things happen and are done and what God exactly is doing. And part of what the apostle is telling us in this doxology is, you can't know that. You can't know that. Why not? Because of what Paul says here. Oh, the depth 
You see that word, that the Greek word there is bathos. It, it just carries this connotation of something that cannot be plumbed. You can't get that far. It's so deep. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. It's important to see here, Paul understands mystery, and what does he do? He moves to doxology. Let me tell you the other reaction that happens probably more often, and that's anger or agitation. It's certainly true in the history of the church. Countless examples of studies of the character of God come up against mystery and simply say, then God cannot be this way. If I can't understand it, I won't affirm it. Remember this example I gave last week at the uh, end of the class about this man who was in New England in the same pulpit for 69 years. Ebenezer Gay was his name. 69 years, not life, in the same church, in the same pulpit began as a Puritan preacher affirming the doctrines of grace and the covenant and ended his 69th year with the designation the first Unitarian minister in this country. Unitarian meaning he denied the Trinity. Now, in the history of the church, both Catholic and Protestant, if you deny the Trinity, you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean we're judging his heart. It just means there's no church that he would be able to be a member of by virtue of that denial. What happened to Ebenezer Gay? He didn't wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to be a liberal. Congregation's not going too well. People out there might like the liberal stuff better. Starting today, I'm going to preach liberal stuff. That's not what he did. He just slowly, over 69 years, you can see it really in some of his writings and his sermons, he slowly, over 69 years, began to think to himself, You know what? If I can't get it, it can't be true. If I can't understand what's going on, and now you project that to the character of God. Notice the subtle arrogance here. Maybe not so subtle. You project that to the arrogance of God, and then what are you saying? If you don't make yourself fully understandable to me, there's no way I'm going to affirm it, much less preach it. That's what happened to Ebenezer Gay. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence, all 100% God, but not three gods? Can't have it. God is one, period. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just expressions. Nice expressions, helpful expressions of the one God, but not three persons. Not going to tolerate that because my mind can't grasp it. Now that's just one example, and they can be multiplied countless times of what happens in the church when people can't stand mystery, especially with respect to the character of God. And we're going to have to come to grips with that in this quarter because you're going to get it, and I'm going to get it, and we're going to have to say at many points, I just don't know how this works. I really don't know how this works. Think of one of our most important doctrines in the history of the church, the Incarnation. Now, if you don't affirm the Incarnation in an orthodox way, Again, in the history of the church, this is, this is the, the way it's understood in the history of the church, that's heresy. If you don't understand the, the incarnation in an orthodox way in that 
the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, condescended, and while remaining God, that is, not giving up any of His attributes in terms of who He is as God, He took on human flesh. So that we have in the person of Jesus Christ, completely God, completely man. Now explain that. We can't, can we? we? We have no examples, really, of that. I mean, there, there have been examples that have been attempted in the history of church, and analogies can sometimes help, but we just don't know how one person can have completely, in and of himself, two such disparate natures. The nature of God, completely, nothing given up, and the nature of man. But friends, if we don't affirm that, can we really call ourselves Christian? Isn't this what our faith depends upon? That the Son of God condescended and took on human flesh in order to identify with us, in order to actually die on the cross? We have to affirm that. But when we affirm it and we say, okay, how does this, how does this happen? I don't know. We don't know how it happens, but God makes it happen. One of our great um, theologians in the history of the church, Herman Bovink, uh, put it this way. He says, all theology, all, not just doctrine of God material, but all theology, he says, is ultimately a mystery. It has to be, doesn't it? Because we're always dealing with God's ways in the world. The response of the Christian when we come up against mystery is the response of the Apostle Paul. Doxology. Worship, not a demand to understand that God be accountable to us to reveal himself in such a way that we get it all. No, but instead, with the Apostle Paul, we're to look and to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul goes on to say, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways you see what he's saying god has given us revelation we're responsible to understand that revelation that is we don't we don't turn as was done in the history of the church we don't turn to mysticism and say the less we know the better we worship see that's that's not good either that's happened in, in the history of the church we don't say that but we say we are responsible as God's own people to understand what he has said to us but even in understanding that we have to confess how unsearchable are his judgments why did God determine to do things in the way that he did think think about that here's here's the mystery for me there are so many mysteries in Scripture. We're going to talk about some of them. Here's the, here's the one that really gets to me. Here is God in eternity living in perfect fellowship with Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no lack in anything. God needs nothing. And then He says at some point, He says, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to spend eternity with the likes of those people. I think I'm going to make some people and spend eternity with them. I don't get that. That just completely bothers me. You know why? Because I don't want to spend eternity with most people that I know. <laughs> you know what's even worse? I don't want to spend eternity with me. I know myself well enough, and I'm thinking, really? 
And then here's God in perfect fellowship, and he says, yeah, let's say we bring these people in for eternity and be with them, be present with them eternally. That is a mystery that I'm not sure we'll ever understand. I mean, we know what our goal is in this, is to glorify and honor God. Okay, I get that, but God didn't need to be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, apart from us. Now he has this glorification that's a part of what we're supposed to do. How unsearchable are his judgments? What is it that motivated God to say, I want to spend eternity with redeemed sinners? That's a mystery. How unscrutable his ways. That is, we don't know what God is up to in the world exactly. We have indications, we have general ideas from what biblical revelation gives us. But as uh, Abraham Kuyper said one time, the Holy Spirit has no footprints. His ways are inscrutable. He, you can't see exactly what he's doing at a given point. You don't know where God is doing what in the world. But you know this, he's orchestrating it. But Paul's point is, at some point, we're not to know those things. His ways are inscrutable. And we're going to come up against some ideas in this course, and you're going to feel this in your own heart. You're going to feel this pretty keenly, some of you. You're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to say, this is what you're going to say to me. I promise you'll say this to me. You mean to say, God is this, and we're this, or God's doing this, and we're this? And I'll say, yeah, it seems to be the case. And you'll say, it can't be. To which I hope I'll say to you, his ways are inscrutable. See, we're as far as we can go with this. God's given us all we need. He might not give us all that we want at a given point. And at that point, you see, we're supposed to move with the Apostle Paul to doxology. How inscrutable his ways. Now Paul goes into some rhetorical questions here. Rhetorical because the answer is obvious. For who has known the mind of the Lord... Or who has been his counselor? Now think about that question. The answer is supposed to be obvious. Nobody, of course. But now we get into some of the difficulties that we have with perhaps the way God's running the universe. And then we begin to say, wait a minute. I don't think God's doing that. I don't think God knows that. I don't think God would move in that way, and we start to think, maybe, maybe I do know the mind of the Lord. Paul says, no, we don't. We don't know the mind of the Lord, and it's not our responsibility in our prayers to say, um, Lord, just in case you didn't know this was happening here with me, or this was happening in the world, just in case you're paying attention over there, not here. See, sometimes we want to be the Lord's counselor, don't we? We want to say, Lord, here's the way you ought to, here's the way it would work better from my vantage point, which happens to be pretty limited. Here's the way it ought to happen. Who has been the Lord's counselor? The answer is nobody. The Lord does not take counsel from his servants. He gives us the privilege of serving But he doesn't say to us, why don't you sit around the table with me, let's see where we go from here. It hasn't quite worked out the way I was hoping it would work out. There have been some issues over here in the Middle East. See, the Middle East problem never meant for the land thing to be so volatile. So maybe we can figure out what to do 
The Lord doesn't do that. He knows what He's doing from beginning to end. He knows what He's doing. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? That's supposed to be rhetorical. (laughs) The answer is supposed to be no one. But how does it really work out with us sometimes? You ever thought this way? Lord, um, you know, I've been pretty faithful here reading the Bible and things. I read through, read through it in a year about ten years ago. And so, so the point I'm making is since I did that, it seems to me the neighbor over here is getting along better than I'm doing. I'm not saying you, you owe me except that maybe you owe me. Or, or um, to use a, a biblical example, you remember how it went with the prodigal son. The prodigal comes back and the father's excited kill the calf, let's have a party. And the elder son is saying, yes, I'll organize it, I'll even fund it. No, he's not. He's mad, isn't he? The elder son, he comes, comes to the father and he says, uh, haven't I slaved for you all these years? You never threw this kind of party for me. Who's the elder son? Sometimes it's us, isn't it? It's meant in the parable, it's meant to be the Pharisees. Father, look what I've done for you. You never did this for me. You owe me this party because I've been so faithful to you. We do think that way sometimes, don't we? And Paul's saying, no, we can't. The Lord is no man's debtor. We owe him ourselves, we owe him allegiance. As a matter of fact, it's important to see that this little passage, 33 to 36 in chapter 11, really is a transition passage in the book of Romans. If you want to split it up, it's kind of artificial to think of it exactly this way, but I think it's helpful sometimes. Uh, Chapters 1 through 11 really have a lot of teaching, what we call the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. And then in chapter 12 and on, Paul begins to apply that. Now, you get plenty of doctrine there as well, but it's more the application of what that looks like. And between that, beginning of chapter 12, end of verse 11, what do we have? We have doxology. That is that the teaching that we get, the doctrine we have, should lead us to doxology. Think about now the book of Romans. And that doxology should lead us to faithful practice and faithful living. So that at the beginning of chapter 12, what does Paul say? Therefore, by the mercies of God, do what? Present yourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Not present an offering. Not, hey, give God a little nod here and there. Give Him yourself as a sacrifice acceptable to Him. Why? Because of all that we've said, Paul's saying, because of all that I've said, In the beginning of this, 11 chapters to show you who God is, what He's done, how He's conquered sin, what His plan is for us, that it extends even into eternity future, that He's done all this through Christ. And now you see this doxology is supposed to lead you to the presentation of yourself to God as a sacrifice. It's really the way... The week is meant to be orchestrated. Doxology today, worship today, leading to practice with respect to that worship Monday through Saturday so that we bring all those things into our respective callings where God has placed us. 
That's what Paul is saying here. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Just in case you don't get it, Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are most things. Nope. All things. All things. And it's very clear in the way that Paul puts this, that when he says all things, he means all things. From God, he's the source. Through him, he orchestrates it. He providentially orchestrates it. To him, he's the goal of it all. He's the end. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, and everything in between, all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. So, Paul says, to Him be glory forever. If you're into making bumper stickers, there's a good one. To Him be glory forever. Remember I said it last week, and I'll repeat it again. We all know it. It's obvious on the face of it. All parents have said it. But it is very difficult to apply. We are not the center of this world. We just aren't. God has bigger things in mind than our own personal comfort and satisfaction. He's molding us into His servants. And all to His glory. Not so that we can be better off or more comfortable or fully satisfied, but that He can be glorified. So even when we suffer... That's meant to be done to the glory of God, isn't it? To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is Paul's conclusion to a very difficult section in the book of Romans. We're going to talk some, Lord willing and time allowing, we're going to talk some about election because we're going to get into what God is doing in history with respect to what He has planned in eternity. And I'll just tell you up front, in case you don't want to spend more time here this quarter, the Bible teaches that we're chosen in eternity past. It does. And we're going to try to think about how that relates to what's going on in history. And it's going to be difficult for some of us because we're going to want to think, hold it for just a minute. You mean I didn't orchestrate this whole thing? You mean I'm not here? I'm not where I am because of me? And the answer is that's right. We had something to do with it, but we are instruments and vessels in God's sovereign hands, and our responsibility is to give Him the glory. So in uh, the great hymn by Bonner, Blessing and honor and glory and power, wisdom and riches and strength evermore, give ye to him who our battle hath won, whose are the kingdom, the crown, and the throne. And that's really what the book of Revelation helps us to see, isn't it? You know how it goes there in chapter 4 as John is transported to heaven and he sees God there on the throne, he sees all these effects coming out and he knows that they're there because of the presence of God. And then in chapter 5, the Lamb of God himself takes that scroll of God's plan from the right hand of the Father and he sits down there because he's the only one worthy to do it. And then a new song comes, praising the Lord and the Lamb 
in heaven. And Revelation tells us how that takes place in history. Now, of course, a lot of things hidden there, meant to be hidden, because it's prophetic literature. That is, it's prophecy, not history, as a historical narrative would be. So you have to interpret it that way, and that's why you have all sorts of imagery and things like that. But one thing you begin to understand in the book of Revelation, and that is that Christ reigns and He's to be praised, both in history and in eternity. If you read the book of Revelation that way, you begin to see what God is up to. Blessing and honor and glory and power to the Lord and to the Lamb. All right, so it's important uh, to study who God is, uh, partly because of doxology, so that we might worship Him, but so we also understand where all things are going. All things are going to be consummated to the glory of God. And our glorification, when we are glorified, the new heavens and the new earth, is to the glory of God, not to ourselves. We reap the benefits, but God alone is glorified. Thirdly, won't be able to finish this uh, this morning, but we can at least uh, begin to think about it. Uh, knowledge of God, understanding of God is important thirdly because it is central even to the ministry of Christ. Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now you see here, I think it's a fairly natural transition from this to what we were discussing in Romans 11 because we see here a prayer of praise from Christ Himself, praise for God's own sovereignty, His ultimate control. Christ is thankful to His Father that the plan of salvation lies in the hands, ultimately, of God Himself. And He's thankful that this plan does not have its basis, its foundation, in human wisdom or intelligence. It's so important to uh, realize that in the Christian faith. That we're not Christians because we're smarter than others, better educated. That's not the case. We never point to ourselves with respect to what God has done. We are Christians because God has picked us out, given us the faith that we ourselves exercise so that all glory is His and not ours. And Jesus is saying that. He's saying this depends on God's own choice. Verse 26, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious Will, this is what you decided. This is what you wanted. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. Why? Because of the intimacy of the triune God. No one knows the Father except the Son. And, this is part of why Christ came, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. How is it that you know the Father? Ultimately, it's because Christ has revealed Him to you. In His Word, of course. In His coming, when He came, He was revealing the Father. We're going to look at this uh, at some point in just a few minutes, but you remember Philip's question. Lord, you know, Philip's all excited about what he's hearing uh, in the Upper Room Discourse in, in John, and he says, Lord, how about this? Hey, show us the Father. That'd be, that'd be great. This is good. I like what you're saying. Now, show us the Father. What does Jesus say? You can, you can, you can feel the frustration in what Jesus says. Here, let's just flip to it now. We, here, I'll, I'll skip that for a minute. Whoops. Whoops. There. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? You, see, you can see the frustration that can't you? He's saying to Philip, Philip, it's not that your question is bad, it's just that you've already got what you've asked for. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then almost like a parent, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. See what he's saying here? I'm here, Jesus is saying, I came to show you the Father. I am the revelation of God on earth. And guess what? He is the revelation of God in eternity. What all Christians look forward to in the history of the church is what's called the visio dei, the vision of God. What we need to see is that the Visio Dei is the Visio Christi, the vision of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth because it is Christ as the Son of God who has taken on visibility so that we might see God for who He is. We'll talk about this later on, but God is essentially invisible. Remember Jesus speaking to the woman, the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. He's essentially invisible. So how then do we see Him? We see Him in Christ. So that when He appears, 1 John tells us, we will be like Him. Why? Because we will see Him as He is. The glory of Christ will be transferred to His servants at that moment when we see Him. That's what John is saying. He's not saying we'll be like Him, but we will be God. Of course he's not saying that. We will be like Him, that is, glorified, even as He is glorified, because we'll see Him glorified, and His glory will be transferred to us because we see Christ. And we won't say then, hey, this is great, now... Show us the Father. Let's see the Father. 
See, when we're with Christ, we see the Father. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. God has made Himself visible, condescending to us in the second person of the Trinity. Now, that's an important point that we're going to come back to a good bit as we move through this course. What I'm going to want to try to help us see is that if we want to know who God is, if we want to know the character of God and His attributes, the first place we have to begin to look to see that properly, that is biblically, is to look at Christ. See who Christ is and what He has done. So Jesus is saying here in, his, in this prayer, Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You have revealed them to little children, to those who do not count themselves to be wise and understanding, to those who are not saying the way that I get to God is through my own wisdom, that I have what it takes to get myself to God. You've revealed these things to those who in humility say, unless God tells me, I cannot know. I cannot know. I was saying this uh, last week just to reiterate again. This is why we must, must, must have our Bibles and understand them to be the Word of God. Because unless God tells us, we cannot know. Scripture is clear about that. Who would have come up with Christianity on their own? Let me ask it this way. What religion in the history of the world, has done it this way. Name one religion where it is taught, okay, here's what happens. We've all violated God's law, but here's what happens. God is triune, three persons, one God, and and what happens is the second person of the Trinity actually condescends takes on our own nature without sin so that he can live a perfect life and die a perfect death. And our sins that we've committed then are given over to him, imputed, reckoned to his account. He gets credit for those in his death. And then his righteousness comes over to us. Simple. Right? There's not a religion in the world that even approaches that idea. Every other religion says this, hey, do the right stuff and you'll get to the right place. Do the right things because God needs to be appeased. You've done some bad things. He's not happy. Do some good things. He'll get happy. And then he'll be obligated to take you in. Right? What other religion says you can't do it? You can't do it because of your sin. What other religion says the bad news is so bad that God alone has to accomplish the good news? No other religion. Every other religion says, bad news kind of bad, you can do the good news. Exactly. That's exactly right. It just, you just don't see it. I mean, in Islam, which claims to be in some cases you know, kind of close Christianity, there's no God that condescends. It's beneath Him to condescend. I mean, there goes the gospel, right? There's no gospel if God doesn't condescend. There's no gospel if He doesn't come down in Christ. You've got no gospel in Islam. There's no good news. you just got to work and work and work and hopefully get there. 
I think I told, told you last week, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Boy, talk about no good news. It's not there. I'm telling you, I was in the middle of it. My family was in the middle of it. And there is no good news, and you wake up every morning wondering, I wonder if I've done enough. Or, in my case, no way I could do enough, throw it all away. I don't care anymore. It's not worth it. Then what happens? Maybe you go through the motions, maybe you leave. But either way, once you get into this sort of works-oriented mentality, which all of us are prone to, because obedience is important in the Christian life, but we've got to put that in the right context. It's not like the elder son in the parable that we obey so that God will repay us. He owes us something. We obey because we love to please Him. Our hearts change now and we think, boy, nothing I'd rather do than do what He likes me to do. That's a whole different thing. You don't find that in any other religion. I tell you, we've got these... I finally, yesterday, was, I think, courteous. Jehovah's Witnesses are coming to my house like every week. And I told these, these two ladies, I said, you are so diligent. But mark me off the list, please. You've been here every week. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm not a candidate. I know, I was supposed to do apologetics and be all that, but I didn't have the time. <laughs> They'd been there every week. I'd already talked to them. But why are they doing that? Because you do that, you're earning favor, aren't you? You're getting yourself into that 144,000 where then you get accepted. Not in Christianity. See, in Christianity, is what Christ is saying. God does it all. Because we can't do it. We're not able to do it. We can't accomplish what has to be done in order to please God. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but see, even there, I, wanna, I think you're exactly right. Eternity begins for us at the point in time when we exercise faith in Christ. But I think we need to understand that even though the veil is lifted, even though we see face to face, we're going to talk about this a little bit later too, we still never have all the answers. We, we cannot know comprehensively because only God No, then. At any point. We cannot know comprehensively because God remains God and He alone has omniscience. He knows all things. We'll know all things we need to know. But we won't know everything we might want to know because then we would be God. We'd have to be omniscient at that point. So I think there's always going to be a place uh, where the distinction between who God is and who we are is quite obvious in every area of what God is doing and every area of what we're doing. But you're exactly right that at the point when we see Christ face to face, we will know so much more then. I think C.S. Lewis put it this way, that when we get to heaven, the first thing we'll say is, of course. In other words, oh, sort of like that. But we won't know comprehensively. All right, let's pray. Thank you for your attention. Our God, we thank you again that you have indeed revealed yourself to little children, that you have even taken us out of our sin and our misery And you have drawn us through your Spirit to yourself and giving us that great salvation that is ours in Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that even now you continue to teach us. And we ask that this day, as we worship your name, you would teach us more of who you are, that we might know you better, and in knowing you better might know how better to please you as our hearts would want. Bless us this day. For Christ's sake, amen.